in a house of mysteries. This hotel seems to have quite a history, Mrs. Gallagher. Who are you people? A research team with special powers. <gasps> My God. She's experiencing the past. Because we are all joined by our thoughts. <laughs> Has uncovered an ancient secret. I have something I want to show you. <laughs> Metaphysically speaking, I killed myself. <laughs> But they are playing with an evil force. What would you do with the power? You can't save her, Alex. They have given life to a deadly power. We're all in danger. And now a box of little toys. I think someone's in the room, Frank. Has become a gang of little terrors. Pinhead, Blade, Ms. Leech, Jester, and Tunneler. Irene Miracle, Paul Lamatt, Barbara Crampton, and William Hickey as the Puppet Master. Today we will continue on our hunt for the Swiss Army Slasher. Ooh, uh, shit, I have something. Um, Oneida Eviscerator? Uh, the Wusthof Murderer. Something about a cleaver? I don't know. Butter knife butcher? Did, did we do that one? You did no. that one. Damn. No, I'm out. What about the cheese knife chirurgien? It is French. <laughs> okay. A serial killer known for murdering his victims with tiny knives who has plagued this country and possibly others since the late 70s. Today we will cover yet another speed run of murdered travelers, this time in 1989. Four research colleagues met up at a closed-down California hotel and were in for a terrible surprise. I mean, isn't a terrible surprise the only reason you'd go to a closed-down hotel? I guess if you're broke, squatting in a closed hotel is a good deal? Hmm. Today we will be covering a case that has come to be known as the Bodega Bay Bloodbath. I'm Karina. I'm Emily. And I'm Katie. And And this this is is The the Nameless Nameless Dead. In October of 1989, Four accomplished researchers from across the country were summoned by an old colleague of theirs named Neil Gallagher to an inn off the California coast. I can't think of a single colleague I know well enough or like enough to fly across the country for to an abandoned inn. Sorry, current co-workers. The researchers, who referred to themselves as psychics, or as one would later put, magicians. (laughs) I would like the record to know my eye roll. (laughs) Yeah, fellow psychics would be just about the only type of colleague to respond to a summoning. The researchers included Alex Whitaker, a professor of anthropology at Yale University, 
Frank Forrester and Carissa Stamford, researchers studying real-time thought transfer at Pensive Research Incorporated, and Dana Hadley, who was touring as a psychic with a traveling carnival. How did she get roped into this? I don't know. Also, was she always a psychic or did she start out as a researcher and now she has a side gig as like a psychic <laughs> touring Can't carnival? Resist the pole of the carnival. All right. Upon arrival, this group was greeted from the grand stairwell that swept into the hotel lobby by the owner of the hotel, Megan Gallagher, and Teresa Small, the hotel's last remaining employee. It was then that Megan informed them that her former husband had passed away before their arrival. Megan and Neil had married two years prior in 1987, after the sudden death of Megan's parents. Neil's research into a marionette maker... Okay, I was about to be like, more dolls? But then I remembered what we were doing. (laughs) Named Andre Toulon, who had committed suicide in the hotel in 1939, is what initially brought Neil to the Bodega Bay Inn. According to Megan, Neil had been incredibly supportive of her during her time of mourning, and the two fell in love. Once they were married, Neil took a great interest in running the hotel and insisted it be shut down for extensive renovations. Unfortunately, he died by suicide before the hotel was able to reopen. Neil's body, embalmed and neatly tucked into a large white coffin, was on display in one of the hotel's sitting rooms by the time the guests arrived. Neil had specifically requested to delay his burial until after their arrival. So he definitely invited them and then died by suicide with instructions to be left there for them? That's very odd. And I'm interested to know more about the circumstances surrounding Andre's suicide. Me too. His suicide seems like a bit like performative to leave instructions for after for a bunch of people you've invited across the country. Right, and it's very rude to his wife to, yeah. <laughs> to invite your colleagues over, wait, die, <laughs> and then just be like, no, you host. I assume that that was in a suicide note, but I haven't seen any mention of a suicide note. So my question is, did Neil just walk in to Megan one day and be like, hey, should I die very, very soon? No reason. <laughs> no reason. <laughs> in the event of my untimely imminent death. <laughs> wow. Make sure you host all of these four people who are coming from across the country. Oh, okay. So are you saying that he died first and then had in the note requested that they come? No, There's- he requested after inviting them, them thinking that okay. he is alive and well, that he not be buried until after their okay. arrival. Hmm. So he had a very tight timeline he's working with. This is just the first of a series of strange occurrences that would take place on this night at the Bodega Bay Inn. The four researchers, saddened. Hang on, where's the carnival psychic? Okay, wow. (laughs) The three researchers and one carnival psychic. (laughs) I thought it was four plus one, never mind. (laughs) Saddened by the sudden and unexpected news of the death of their friend, and I'm sure confused as to why they were all now gathered, ate dinner together in one of the ballrooms. Oh, imagine four people eating a sad dinner in an empty, incompletely renovated ballroom. (laughs) That's the most depressing thing ever. Why wouldn't they just eat in one of their rooms? There had to be a smaller, less macabre room to eat. Just like, so dusty. But the atmosphere. (laughs) What did they eat, I wonder? Poached pheasant. Takeout. (laughs) 
Yeah, Chinese specifically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a tense dinner as everyone worked through their feelings about their friend's sudden suicide, learning of his secret marriage, and the mystery of why they were now all gathered at a California hotel. He hadn't even told them he got married to you? Yeah, I didn't know that. Come on, Neil. They're a bunch of terrible psychics then. (laughs) This is all a surprise. (laughs) And he's a bad friend. Mm Mm-hmm. As the meal ended and the friends sat around discussing these revelations, the air was suddenly pierced by a harrowing scream. Shortly after hosting dinner, Megan had gone to the sitting room and found something so shocking that she screamed, summoning the guests, and then promptly fainted. In the sitting room, she found her late husband's body, not laying in his coffin where it should have been, but posed sitting up in one of the hotel's armchairs. Ah. Hmm. The supposed psychics rushed to the sitting room to discover this horrid scene. They helped Megan to a couch where she could recover, and when she felt well enough to leave, returned Neil Gallagher's body to his coffin. So they're doing a lot of handling of this body, and I just need to know how long has it been around? Has it been preserved at all? Or are they just moving around this giant biohazard? I mean, yeah, shouldn't they perhaps like have called the authorities? You find a body where it's not supposed to be, or could they not have buried him right when they all arrived there? <laughs> no, they had to eat dinner first. Right, lonely, weird dinner. Well, I think that this is such a weird situation to be like. They couldn't bury him, right? There had to be somebody to dig a grave, probably a plot. He has a coffin. Lock that coffin. During all of this, they discuss the inevitable question. Who the hell had moved and posed Gallagher's dead body? After some discussion, the group realized that the only person who'd been out of sight long enough to have performed such a feat was Teresa, the hotel's maid and caretaker. Teresa had been absent at dinner and ever since. What the group didn't know was that Teresa was actually missing. Teresa Small is believed to be the first victim of the bloodbath. Unless Neil's death was not actually a suicide. Mm. Do we need more mystery to this? Yeah, always, yes. Sometime in the early evening, prior to the guests sitting down to dinner, Teresa sustained a blow to her left temple hard enough to kill her. Mm-mm. Police would later surmise that the weapon used against her was a fire poker, as it is believed she was murdered in the sitting room where she had started a fire for the comfort of the guests following dinner. I'm banning fire pokers. Mm. Teresa's body was later moved to a vestibule near the front doors of the hotel. And get this, her hair was restyled. Oh, to hide the wound maybe? No, it was restyled up and away from her scalp and her temple where she'd been hit. Like to show off the wound? Now also we are two for two dead bodies moving after they're dead in this house. And I'm also curious about the timeline then of Teresa's death. Because the murderer would have had to have time to A, kill her, B, move her, C, pull out a hairdryer, <laughs> get the hairspray, the Aquanet. I guess these are all good questions. These are, these are all <laughs> questions I have too. I need a timeline. I can tell you what I know, which is they believe Teresa murdered, then did. Oh, okay, okay. Thus far in the case. Wait, no. who served them dinner? No one. I guess no one. Maybe Megan. Style? 
takeout. We're sticking with that yeah. story. This whole ballroom idea is just not playing Absolutely when there being not. only one housekeeper who was also missing at dinner. Something something doesn't check out here. <laughs> that's that's what we're focused on. All right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I weep for what's coming then. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> More horrors were to follow once the guests retired to their separate rooms for the night. Oh, okay then. Never separate. The tragedy we have the most information on is Carissa Stamford and Frank Forrester. These two not only worked together at Penther Research Incorporated, they were also lovers, hence the reason they were sharing a room. The research Frank and Carissa conducted was peculiar to say the least. The two were attempting to legitimize psychic connections, referred to as real-time thought transfer. A subject would lie in a separate observation room and attempt to convey her, it was always a female subject, darkest sexual fantasies to Carissa. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and make some assumptions about Frank and Carissa. And Uh like, can they just not have weird sex like the rest of us and not involve test subjects? I want to know what kind of waiver you need to sign to participate in that study. It's probably all students and interns. This does not seem legit. They're just acting out their fantasies. Absolutely. Now, on the one hand, people did seem to believe that Carissa had some sort of psychic link to the past. She could tell things that had occurred around various inanimate objects just from touching them. What Mm -hmm. does that have to do with sexual fantasies? Mm -hmm. I want to (laughs) know. Frank, on the other hand, was clearly obsessed with combining his sexual interests with flimsy scientific veils. Run, Carissa, run. So far, don't really see what she sees in him. This is why at 1.46 a.m. on December 8th, Frank recorded Sexual Experiments 517A. 517A? (laughs) Just how many experiments and subsections is this creeper doing? I know the A implies that there's a B. (laughs) Maybe even a C. (laughs) Well, we can be almost certain there was a D involved. 517A, an attempt to speak with the dead. The poor dead are like, please stop. We don't want to hear you have sex anymore. So the dead are the unwilling participants. <laughs> the third party. This recording was intended to be an audio recording of he and Carissa having sex in their hotel room, but ended up recording both of their murders. Devastatingly, in foreplay. <laughs> what a phrase! <laughs> yeah, word. that's like the title of my next autobiography. <laughs> In foreplay, Carissa blindfolded Frank and tied him to the bed. Okay, I'm just impressed with their commitment to foreplay while on a work trip. (laughs) I guess they just couldn't resist in a big old creepy hotel like this. Mm. It wasn't long after their copulation began that Carissa somehow realized that someone was in the room with them. She began to look for them, Frank still tied up, mind you, and within a few seconds, her screams can be heard over the recording. Carissa was murdered with a large spiral groove drill bit drilled into her mouth. Oh, no. Okay, but also, this was in the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. I'm picturing 80s power tools, and maybe I'm just underestimating them. But I'm sure this wasn't like a sleek Ryobi with a battery (laughs) pack. (laughs) Like, it was probably plugged into the wall and not stealthy. So, like, how did they get a drop on Carissa? Some serious stealthy planning ahead was required here.
We know from the recording that the perpetrator does not draw out her suffering for very long. At least there's that. (laughs) Poor Frank remained tied up in bed, struggling to break free, listening to his lover's murder, before the killer turned his attention to him. The killer began to sexually engage with the tied-up Frank. So we've been referring to the killer in this case by a male pronoun, as it's largely believed the Swiss Army slasher is a man. But in this recording, a higher-pitched voice can be heard, leaving some to speculate that the SAS may be a woman, or at least that a woman was a co-conspirator in this particular murder. Do we know anything about what the voice was saying or doing? Moaning. Oh. Mm-hmm. Engaging. Hmm. Okay, I regret asking. As Frank relaxed. Relaxed? Like, how is Frank already over the fact that Carissa got murdered? Yeah, so either he's just going to, like, gloss over the fact that she's introducing a new murder fantasy or that she fought off a murderer and is continuing, what, fellating him without mentioning it? Frank believed that Carissa was safe and their experiment could continue as planned. The killer began placing leeches across the left side of Frank's stomach. <laughs> okay. What? Now I'm picturing the killer with a giant fucking drill and a tank of leeches just like hiding behind a curtain waiting for Frank and Carissa. And of course the tiny knife. Yes. Can't forget the tiny knife. Maybe the leeches wielded the tiny mm, knife. There we go. This continued all over his upper body, with the killer ripping off the leeches, leaving deep gashes, until Frank eventually bled out from a wound on his neck. Okay, so how far into this do we think Frank still thought this was fun, sexy time? Turns out they use leeches in the bedroom, casually. Either immediately prior to or immediately after this, the killer also visited Dana Hadley's room. Now, Dana had lived an adventurous life up until this point and had some idea of how to take care of herself. So you can imagine when she entered her hotel room in the middle of the night and found a strange person waiting for her, she immediately began fighting back. As the killer chased her from her room to the elevator, where she tried to get away from him, she sustained a broken ankle, a small bite mark on her calf, and multiple blows to the face. Does a small bite mark imply a small mouth? Was it a small human bite mark or an animal? Do we know? More like a gouged out chunk of flesh with some indication that it may have come from teeth. Ugh. Gouged out chunk of flesh. It seems like he was chasing her and beating her in any way he could to slow her down. While she did make it to the elevator, she didn't make it to safety. Dana's throat was slit as she cowered in the corner of that elevator in fear for her life. And what was her throat slit with? A small knife. Brutally murdering Carissa, Frank, and Dana wasn't enough for this or these killers. We already know from Gallagher and Teresa's bodies that he had a penchant for moving his victims once he kills them. So guess what he does next? He takes all three of their bodies to the ballroom where they ate dinner and arranges the bodies sitting around the table. Katie, they should never have dined in that too large ballroom. You were right. Abandoned ballrooms are full of red flags. But he's not done yet. (laughs) He then goes to Gallagher's coffin and pulls out his body again. Ugh, take a hint, SAS. Let the guy stay in his coffin. He carries the body to the very same elevator where he had just killed Dana 
and begins mutilating Gallagher's dead body using the exact same implements that he had just used to murder the guests. He drills into the back of Gallagher's right calf and into his neck with the same drill bit he used to murder Carissa. He cuts off three of Gallagher's left fingers and stabs the top of the corpse's left hand with his small knife. And then he shoves a leech into his throat, which investigators later found there, dead from formaldehyde poisoning hours later. Wow. Okay, so that means that Gallagher's body was preserved. Yes. Okay. If this is the same person who moved Gallagher's body earlier, like I'm just impressed at his resolve to not mutilate it then, if he obviously has such a penchant for disturbing mutilations. I wonder if he was using it as a scare tactic the first time. Some kind of bait or something. This is very intense. It's a, there must have been yeah. something between the two of them because I've never heard of a, you know, stranger being murdered quite like this. And I wonder what the significance is of cutting off three left fingers and the leeches. That's just so specific. Right. And this has me questioning all over again whether Gallagher really did die by suicide. Because this just, it's starting to look a little too coincidental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You think he was murdered? Of the people staying in the Bodega Bay Inn on the night of December 7th, 1989, there were two survivors, Megan Gallagher and Alex Whitaker, who purportedly slept through most of the horrors that occurred that night. Purportedly. Mm -hmm. Alex did show some wounds, and there was some indication of a struggle in the dining ballroom and lobby, seemingly unattached to any of the aforementioned murders. Is he saying these happened in his sleep? Seemingly unattached? Cue my highly sus face. And how did they not hear screams? Well, you see, it's just another big old drafty hotel with unusually good soundproofing. Hmm. But police released both Megan and Alex after only a short period of questioning. Come on. The two survivors should be your main suspects, police. Come on, why not question them longer, more thoroughly? Alex even flew back to Connecticut the next day. They didn't even make him stay in California? More than a day? We are plagued with shoddy police work in these cases we're reviewing. (sighs) And that is the case of the Bodega Bay Bloodbath. Bath indeed. It is appropriately named. So what do we think? Was it the Swiss Army slasher or another murderer? Hmm. There was a tiny knife, but there was also a whole lot of other weird stuff. (laughs) Yes. Although murder by another method is uh, another... An MO of the Swiss Army slasher, for sure. We've moved from, like, T-ball to the varsity team here in terms of other weird stuff. How long has it been since the last Swiss Army slasher murder? Two years. If we're counting the one that happened in England as a Swiss Army slasher case. Which I think we kind of decided it wasn't. In that case, uh, since the Corky Withers case, it's been about 10 years. Mm. Okay. It's a lot of time to invest in the latest top of the market power tools. (laughs) So here's how it fits with the other cases we've discussed thus far. Obviously, as Emily said, this case wouldn't be considered a Swiss Army slasher case if someone wasn't killed by a small knife. But the process of killing does differ drastically from what we've seen. Rather than being stabbed by a small knife, as we've seen in every case so far, Dana Hadley's only knife wound was the slash to her throat. 
The person in the hotel who was punctured with a knife was Neil Gallagher, who was already deceased at the time of the attack. And the suicide is an odd element here. Do we think it was actually murder or a coincidence? And did the 1939 suicide have anything to do with this? Or is that also a coincidence? Oh, good question. And I know that we talked about this a little bit, but do we know anything about the circumstances of the suicides? Really, there's just not much written about it. And from the way that the body was handled and also with how police reacted to Megan, I wonder if she was a very private person who kept most of this really close to her chest. Still, would there not just be like a, a county coroner's report from his initial suicide, like before all the revelations right. happened? And do we know the method of suicide? That's what I couldn't find. I can tell you the method for Andre Toulon was with a gun. Hmm. So I wonder if Neil was also a gun, how was the body ID'd? Is it possible that Neil isn't even dead? Maybe he faked his death. To what end? Look. Okay. I really want to see this coroner's <laughs> report. Was he really dead? While we're on the subject, we've also never seen a post-mortem attack like this or the blatant displaying of victims' bodies that we see in this case. And previous attacks haven't been the sadistic either, right? I, I mean, Absolutely in, not. Yeah, in Corky's, it was definitely a crime of passion. And this is a completely different realm. Poof, no kidding. Yeah, we've definitely seen bodies move before in both cases, uh, regardless of what your theories are. But all of the times it's to hide the bodies rather than to like pose and display or further attack them. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned before that the Swiss Army slasher ramps up in the late 80s and early 90s. And this case marks the beginning of a possible case a year for multiple years. What we've seen thus far is the time between cases getting shorter and shorter as the killer gets bolder. But let me tell you, it's about to really ramp up. Ramp up? I cringe to imagine cases more grotesque than this. As long as there are no more power drills. <laughs> or leeches. This case also had multiple victims killed in a variety of ways over a single night. We've seen the amount of time it takes for this killer to complete his carnage shorten as these cases continue. Murdering four people in a single night is by far the shortest time period we've seen. And not just murdering them, but moving and posing the victims around a large building. This means to me, like, this person must be fairly strong or else there were multiple perpetrators. I mean, possibly both. Personally, I cannot wrap my mind around how Frank and Carissa were murdered at all, let alone by a single person. Frank must have had earplugs and a blindfold on. That's the only explanation. Uh, or like drugs? Like, I don't... Uh, well, you can hear him on the recording reacting to Carissa, him not being able to feel her near him anymore and asking her what she's doing, trying to get her to untie him. But like, he, could he not have lifted his head and looked and seen, oh, she's being murdered with a power she's drill. blindfolded, blindfolded. right? Uh, so weasel that thing off. Right. <laughs> Turns out Chrissy used to work on a boat and it's really good at knots. <laughs> Likewise, the means of murder have become more elaborate. It almost seems like he's murdering so many people at this point that he's starting to get bored. Where do you even get leeches? Do I don't know. Have... They're by the ocean. Like, it's not like he could go out to the local swamp and get any. It's a California ocean. In Calif Where in California are they? 
Bodega Bay. I don't know where that is. I don't is. know either. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, like, we're in the late 80s. It, it would have to be pretty challenging to go by leeches. Apothecaries are several centuries out of date, and Amazon and the internet aren't there to like go buy whatever weird shit your heart fancies. Yeah. Where do you buy the leeches? We're very fixated. <laughs> I, <on these> sorry, <laughs> one more thought. One more thought. How long does it take to kill somebody with a leech? Like, are they that efficient at blood sucking? No, 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 no. That's why he was ripping them off. So he planned to kill him with a leech and was like, fuck, this is taking too long. <laughs> he ended up using six or seven leeches or maybe one leech six or seven times. Hmm. The I mean, poor unless leech. that leech is like really fixated on a key artery or something, ripping it off. It's the neck. Uh, it was the neck that finally got him. Uh, I still need to see the science placement. behind that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, where's the coroner's report? I want it on my desk. Monday morning stat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is another thing. I've noticed this in the past few cases, and I think it's probably a pattern. The Swiss Army slasher always leaves one woman alive to bear witness to the police. There was Peggy Ann Snow, Judith Bauer, and now Megan Gallagher. Sometimes these survivors can be of great help to the investigation, like Judy, and sometimes not, like Megan. I'm not sure what the reasoning is or the deciding factor for the last girl when it comes to the Swiss Army slasher. Um, There's always a number of other women who are killed and sometimes brutally tortured beforehand in these cases. Maybe the killer likes that element of danger for themselves, the possibility of a survivor linking clues back to them. Well, it's interesting that it's a woman every time. Does that mean that the killer doesn't view women as a threat or maybe respects them more? Right, like what flavor of misogyny are we dealing with here? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it wouldn't be a Swiss Army slasher case without some connection to dolls, right? Mm-hmm. I'll admit that this one's tenuous. Remember how I said that Neil Gallagher came to the Bodega Bay in researching a man named Audre Toulon, who had committed suicide at the hotel in 1939? Mm-hmm. Well, Toulon was a marionette maker. He wrote in his journal, which Gallagher was researching, that he considered the dolls he made to be his children. Ooh. So we have this suicide in 1939 and then another in 1989. Are there any other weird deaths that have happened in this hotel? Not that I could find. Hmm. So, yeah, it's just this crazy weird detail, which I kind of love because it introduces yet another type of doll into these cases. Anyway, when Toulon committed suicide in his hotel room, he was surrounded by his handmade dolls. I don't know what they ended up doing with the dolls or where they are now, if they even still exist. We'll probably never know. Not that it's important. He thought those dolls were his children, so he made all his children watch him kill himself. That's Andre. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As you can see... The Bodega Bay bloodbath was a pretty gruesome case and definitely marks an overall increase for all of the Swiss Army Slasher's calling cards. <laughs> Swiss Army Slasher was making it rain with all the calling cards they love this time. From this point, we see more victims, more brutal murders, and shorter timelines between cases. Join us for our next case, which occurs the very next year, Child's Play 2. Until then, don't be nameless. Don't be dead. 
This episode was written and edited by Karina McGeehan, hosted by Emily Shirley, Katie Jeffries, and Karina McGeehan. Our producer is Derek Adams, and sound and music design was done by Ian Ennis with mixing by Alan Rowell. Okay, I really want to see this coroner's report. Mm-hmm.